Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we rejoice in that great grace that you have planned for us from eternity past, provided through Christ, applied by the Spirit. We pray now that as we look to your word, that you would remind us afresh of that grace and that it would mobilize us in living that out and sharing it with others. So speak now through your word. In Jesus' name, amen. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 through 11 is where we will be this morning. And as you turn there, I extend a thank you to your pastor and to you as a church. To you, First Trent, thank you for this opportunity. I love and appreciate you, and you have served me well over the years, and I look forward to our friendship continuing to one of us die or Jesus returns. To you as a church, in many ways, you're like the church at Thessalonica. I hear of you from around the country. Heritage Bible Church has a wonderful reputation in the larger evangelical community. Churches planted both here and around the nation, uh, clarity in its convictions regarding the preached word of God. Uh, I have heard of you often over the years, and I consider it to be an honor to be ministering the word to you in this context this morning. So thank you for having me. 1 Corinthians 6, verses 9 through 11, let me begin just by reading the text. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. It is a new year, friends, and with that comes a new resolve to change we're only seven, eight days in, and I just want to ask, how's that going for you so far? I've already failed in many of the ways that I intended to change this year. Traveling, being at a conference this week doesn't help with those kinds of routines. And yet we all know that odd American penchant for trying to produce some new change at the beginning of a new year and failing inevitably. In fact, that sentiment of us not living up to the change that we so desperately desire for ourselves is something that even uh, the great uh, hymn writer, former slave trader John Newton would resonate with, even two to three years before his death. He's on his deathbed, and a, a friend of his is coming to visit, and he's reflecting over some passages of Scripture, trying to minister to this brother, but at the same time, uh, just confessing where he is in his own life, and he makes that uh, universally famous statement, I am not what I ought to be, 
I am not what I wish to be. I am not what I hope to be. The phrase would continue, but I think just in those four simple statements, we resonate. I am so far from where I want to be. It's a struggle that we all know. Uh, Just generally in our failed resolutions at the beginning of a new year, but more particularly in our desire to be more and more like Christ. It just seems like it's so far away, so distant, so far. Often we're like uh, those children who just long to be like a grown-up. They want to be tall and they want to be strong, but no matter what they do, it just seems like they can't get there soon enough. And so we feel this in habits that we have that won't seem to die, sinful cravings that still linger, even after decades of loving and knowing Jesus, certain disciplines that we want to cultivate that that tend to slip through our fingers, uh, uh, goals that, that are out of reach. And it isn't just personal, it's interpersonal. If we think about like our ministry impact that we want to have with others in the church, I think every one of us who are in Christ long to do spiritual good to other people, but often wonder if we're really making a difference. Are we just wearing a name tag or are we just filling a pew? We want to have impact on the saints around us. We want to evangelize the lost. We hear people speak of, of mission and evangelism and the Great Commission, and, and we long to have those like regular gospel conversations, and we long to see conversions on a regular basis. And it just seems like these things often elude us. And so if you feel this lack, if you feel this insufficiency, if you're frustrated at all with that desire to change, you're not alone. The church at Corinth knew this feeling well, and the Apostle Paul knew how to fix it. The particular passage that we read falls between two massive critiques of the Corinthians' behavior. The first one is at the beginning of chapter 6. The people are struggling so much with one another that they're taking one another to court. And Paul is reasoning with them, hey, you can work out your own struggles. You don't need uh, the the government officials to help make this right. You're going to judge angels one day. Like, you guys are better off than you think you are. You can fix this. And then he's also reminding them, like, look, you're right with God. You don't actually need to be so concerned about your own rights. And he's just giving them straight-up exhortation. It's different than the normal Pauline pattern. Normally, we hear uh, the indicatives before the imperatives, uh, the the statements uh, about who we are before we get the the prescriptions about what we need to be. And yet, in Corinthians, it's reversed. He he actually here is bringing up the problem first, and he hasn't given any theological justification for it until this verse. He's saying, like, I know this is a tall order, but you need to remember something. You're qualified for this, and here's why. You're not that group anymore. You're a different group now. In fact, these few little verses in 9 through 11 will set up the next big command that he's going to give about sexual purity. 
I mean, you thought you had problems in your own congregation or life, but I don't know of many professing Christians today who are struggling on account of the fact that they're visiting or frequenting temple prostitutes. And yet that's the next thing that he's going to address with them. And what is his justification for making this command for their sexual purity? You're not that anymore. You're different. You've been changed from sinners to saints. And so there's a major contrast here between the righteous and the unrighteous, uh, the past and the present. And even in those few verses in 9 and 10, you look at all those things and you could think, oh my goodness, this is a stunning list. These people aren't going to inherit the kingdom of God. May I remind you of something simple? What's listed here are not particular sins, but particular sinners. What I mean by that is, if you're going to use the fancy term, that list in verses 9 and 10 consists of nominatives, not verbs. If you're a grammar geek, you understand what I'm talking about. A verb is just an action. It's something that happens. A nominative is somebody who is characterized by a particular verb. Uh, They do it so much that it just marks them. It's who they are. A quick example, I have painted several times in my life, and I absolutely hate it. But sometimes it just needs to be done. You've got to save the money. You've got to paint the wall. I don't know how many times I've done it. I've done it a lot. But nobody that I know would characterize me as a painter. I have done the activity of painting, but I am not marked by the activity of painting. That's the difference between a verb and a nominative. Paul here is saying people who are marked by these sins will not inherit the kingdom of God. He's he's conceding that from the outset. But he's not saying that anyone who ever commits these sins is not going to inherit the kingdom of God. Because in fact, they're committing some of these sins. So he wants to remind them of something different. You're not that anymore. Something has changed. And in particular, he shows three ways. Three ways that God has already changed us, which sets them up for the practical change that they so desire. These are really simple to follow. The first one, they've been changed from sinners into saints on account of the fact that they've been washed. They've been cleansed from sin's pollution. They've been cleansed from sin's pollution. Just look again at your text. It's very easy to see. Such were some of you, this is what you used to be, but you were washed. Uh, The the Greek word for for but there is the strongest adversative in the Greek language. What's fascinating, I don't know why translators don't do this, but that same strong adversative that's like changing the tone of the conversation is there before the word washed, it's there before the phrase sanctified, and it's also there before the phrase justified. It's just not in our English translation. Paul's saying over and over again, but you're not this, but you're not that, but you're not this. He's trying to make an intentional contrast here, and the first thing that he wants them to understand is that they are now clean, which implies something. It implies that they were dirty. It implies that they felt uh, dirty in some way. So far, we've seen through just the 
nominatives that were mentioned in verses 9 and 10, that they had dirty morals, some of them were idolatry, I mean, struggling with idolatry, fornication, adultery, homosexuality, uh, they had a dirty money, they were bad about stealing from one another at times, they were covetous, they would swindle from time to time. Some of them struggled with a dirty mouth, it says that they were drunkards, they couldn't control what they were taking in, they were revilers, they were speaking poorly about one another. Uh, they felt dirty, they were raised in a corrupt culture, it had an impact on them, they were corrupt inherently on account of original sin. And it seems like it plagued their behavior. It bothered them at the core of their conscience. I think we all know what it's like to so struggle with a particular sin, whether it's one of those small repetitive ones or like the really big one that happened long ago where you just think, I can't be clean of this. You don't know what I've done. You don't know what I'm struggling with. At times, we're like Lady Macbeth and Shakespeare's classic play. We're out of this neurotic sense of guilt over a deed done in the past. We're just constantly obsessing over our own cleanliness, washing our hands, hoping that a little water clears us of this deed, yelling out, damned spot. We want to be clean of the pollution And it seems that there's no solution around. And yet the scriptures assure us that there is cleansing found in Christ. Not just potential, but actual. It's the story of the scriptures from beginning to end. Yes, indeed, humanity had polluted itself And yet even in Isaiah 1.18, God had promised his people that though their sins were as scarlet, they would be white as snow. It was a promise that that was coming one day. And so in Christ, we have experienced that cleansing uh, to such a degree that 1 John chapter 1 and verses 7 and 9 even tell us that if we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and to what? to cleanse us of most unrighteousness. To cleanse us of some unrighteousness. No, to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. In fact, it's such a great promise that he mentions it again in verse 9. All unrighteousness will be cleansed from. And what do you see in the book of Revelation in the end? Go to Revelation, you don't have to turn there, but just write it down. Revelation 7, verses 13 and 14. That they have washed their robes white in the blood of the Lamb. Clean. They're clean. This is, this is who they are. And I say this to you, dear brothers and sisters. This is who you are in Christ. You are clean. And that actually affects your conduct when you get that. Now, I don't know how things go for you. But let me just tell you something that is a typical pattern in my life. I wash my car probably once every six weeks. I know that's, I could do better. Firemen and policemen wash their cars every week. I just don't have the time. But when I do wash my car, something changes. Like when my car's already dirty and the kids are piling in there, they can eat food. 
They can bring their snacks. They can throw it on the floor. I just chunk books in the back seat. Like, it's just, it's already dirty. Who cares? But when I take the time and the money to go to a car wash, to vacuum that thing out, to actually, like, throw all the junk away, to, like, armor all all the stuff, uh, I'm a different man. There is a different car riding experience. For at least the first two weeks, nobody's bringing any food in the car. Everybody's getting their junk out of the car every time. I just treat it differently because I know it's clean. Friends, when you know that you're clean, it actually has a practical impact on your clean living. First Peter, I mean, Second Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 9, I won't turn there either, but Peter's talking about these virtues that he intends for every Christian to be uh, imbibing, uh, displaying, and it's interesting. He says, you'll do these things, or the reason why you don't do these things is because you have forgotten what you were, what God has made you. Paul here is calling them to clean behavior by reminding them that they're already clean. And friends, this is the strategy for us as well. I don't care what you've done. I don't care how often it happens. You just have to first remember that Christ has cleansed you. And I say this especially, just practical note, especially for those of you who have struggled with sexual sin. It's the one that in churches like ours we don't talk about very often publicly, and yet we know it's true. I don't care if it is pornography. I don't care if it is same-sex attraction. I don't care if it is fornication or adultery. That does not define you. Christ cleanses even sexual sin. And so, live clean because you've been made clean. We've been changed from sinners to saints on account of the fact that we've been cleansed from sin's pollution. But there's another aspect of change that's already taken place. And that is, we've been consecrated from sin's purposes. We've been cleansed from sin's pollution already, but we've also been consecrated from sin's purposes. Just note the next word in Paul's argument. But you were washed, you were sanctified. Again, the, the but that's hidden there. But you were sanctified. Now, I, I love the word sanctified because it's one that we never use in everyday, ordinary conversation. And yet, we continue to translate it this way, and I totally understand it, but like it seems so uh, spiritual, it seems so theological, and indeed it is, friends, but I want you to understand that the way that this word was originally used in that context was something that wasn't just reserved for the church. Uh, Sanctified just meant something that was set apart for use for a deity, If you apply it to the Old Testament, it would be something set apart for the special uh, commitment uh, to God. Simple illustrations of this would include uh, certain meats being set aside as an offering unto God. Uh, The tent. There were a bunch of tents as the people were wandering through the wilderness, but there was one tent that was special. It was set apart. It was sanctified. It was holy. Um. The Old Testament people of God in Deuteronomy 7, 6, they were set apart. They were different than the rest of the peoples of the world. Even in the New Testament, we're reminded that we've been brought into the inner circle of the holy ones. We're set apart. Maybe the 
The simplest illustration of this would just be even in your own home. You're an old school southerner like me. I'm from North Carolina. When you get married, uh, you sign up for all this stuff to fill up your house with. You walk through Target with a little gun and just hope that everybody fills up your house with the stuff that you long for. And one of the things that just inevitably gets asked for is, and I don't know why, it's an American thing for sure, but fine china. You've got your everyday ordinary stuff, and then there's this special stuff that you like break out on Thanksgiving and Christmas, and it's different. It, it's set apart. You, you don't eat the normal Friday night pizza meal on the fine china. It's, it's got a different use. Another one, somebody just this past year thought that as a pastor, I would appreciate personalized stationery. It's kind of a dorky thing to get. And yet, it was very kind of them to give it to me. And it's this really expensive paper. It's got Dr. Justin Harris written on it. It's got a special embossed address on the back. You know, I, nobody else can effectively use that. Like, it's set apart for me. It's got my name on it. Like, it's saying that it's from me. It's sanctified. It's got a special purpose. <laughs> Friends, what he's reminding them of is that A new name has been written on them. They were set apart as not just a common or an ordinary dish, but they were going to be used especially for for God's purposes. That they're not, they're not just to themselves, they're not defining their own destiny. They now have been given a new destiny. I think all of us in this room, I'm assuming some Bible belt background around here, know Ephesians 2, verses 8 and 9. Saved by grace, through faith, not of works, amen. But why don't we ever read verse 10? For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works that God has prepared beforehand for those who believe. We have a new destiny. Like, when he saved us by his grace, he set us on a new track to live for his honor and glory. And so often that gets reserved for some like special group of people. I think it's a holdover from Roman Catholicism, frankly, where the, the person who wears the little collar, oh, that person's sanctified. He's set apart. He's holy. The nun with her little habit, oh, she's set apart. She's sanctified. She's holy. And then all of a sudden we translated that into ordinary pastors. Well, the guy wears a suit. He's sanctified. He's holy. Like some kind of external thing marked him off as like, well, that guy, he lives for God. I get to live for me. And yet the reality is all of us are dedicated unto God. It was, I think, in the third century when in the Christian art world, people began painting halos around those that they considered to be saints. Of course, we could review uh, that process that the Roman church actually did when canonizing certain people, calling them saints. And we do indeed think of that as a special word, Uh, St. Matthew, St. John. Well, they were special. They did something different. And yet, it stuns me when I reflect on the fact that this church, with all of its problems, splits the factions, the lawsuits, the fornication, the doctrinal error, that Paul would say to them at the outset of his letter, 
to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. Have you ever considered that for a moment? If somebody has the name or the title in front of them, Reverend so-and-so or Pastor so-and-so, like you think, oh, well, they're, they're set apart. Forget that title. Start introducing yourself to someone as Saint so-and-so and see what happens. That's exactly what Paul is calling for you to do. You are that. Notice, as opposed to Rome, you don't become that and then get the title. (laughs) You're made that by the Lord Jesus Christ and his spirit, and then you live that out. His doing precedes your doing. You are on a new track. Uh, Things are different now than they used to be. So we've been set apart, and I just tell you, friends, that God didn't merely pull you out of the mud and clean you up. He has set you on a new direction, and that is a wonderful thing for us all to consider. It isn't just the pastoral people who are living for the purposes of Jesus. We all are. We all are. God has already made that happen. He has already, listen to this, he's predestined it according to the reference earlier in Ephesians 2.10. It is our destiny. And that will change the way that we live. It will change the way that we approach our opportunities. It'll, it, this would affect our goals. You know, you're setting those resolutions over the last few weeks. You were, you were clarifying some ambitions. Uh, Paul's reminding you, brothers and sisters, those should be holy ambitions, holy goals. In our roles, too, we also, how we get there, how we do those things, we do them as saints, we do them as holy. And so... We've been changed. We've been changed insofar as we've been cleansed from sin's pollution. We have been consecrated from sin's purposes. But Paul's not done. There's one more way in which we've changed, and he says it very clearly. We have been cleared from sin's penalty. We've been cleared from sin's penalty. Do you see that there in the next phrase? but you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified. You were justified. A word familiar to us most here, that's legal language. It means that we've been declared righteous, uh, that we have been acquitted in the, in the courtroom. Uh, we are not guilty. But this is a wonderful thing to be reminded of. And this happened in that great exchange as as Christ lived the, the righteous, upstanding life that we could not live, and then died to suffer the penalty that we deserved to die for our error, for our rebellion, for our wrong. And then there was that great exchange. His, his life was credited to our account, and our sin was credited to his. Fully satisfied, fully paid, he rose again from the dead, showing that Indeed, the transaction was done. God had received the great exchange. And we, indeed, are right in God's eyes, the eyes that matter. And I think it's something, friends, that that we we don't often grasp. And and I'll illustrate it with a simple thought experiment. I want you to think. I'm going to ask you 
to, to rate yourself on a scale of 1 to 10. 10 is totally right with God. 1 is not right with God at all. Simple test. So take a moment, put yourself on the chart. 10, totally right with God. One, not right with God at all. When I talk to most Christians, they typically put themselves around like a six or a seven. Every once in a while, I meet a really ambitious individual who's just going after it and by God's grace will say, I'm a nine. And yet, the reality (laughs) is that you're either a 10 or a zero. You're either right or you're wrong. You're either guilty or not guilty. There is no in-between. That was the struggle of the great Martin Luther. Someone who indeed resolved to, to live righteously before God in every way, shape, or form. He was so convicted as a young man over his profligate life that he would actually vow that he would do whatever it would take to earn God's good favor, and so he would strive in, in activity after activity, he becomes a monk and he wanted to be the strictest of all monks. He would confess so much that even the priest would tell him to stop confessing and go to bed. He would take that great pilgrimage to Rome even, climbing up those sacred steps on his knees, praying every bit of the way there, and yet feeling so empty. It was the, a, a revolutionary moment when he actually began to study the scriptures on his own from the Greek as opposed to the Latin, because he's reading Romans chapter 1, and it says, the just shall live by faith. And and the Latin understanding of that word, the the sense that it conveyed, was that this uh, justificare, this justification, uh, meant to to make righteous, it meant to become righteous. And yet the, the Greek word that we're looking at here, the one that's also there in Romans 1, that Luther was wrestling with means to declare righteous. It's not a dynamic thing, like it grows into it, but it's a declared thing. It's either I've said it and it's true of you or it's not. And it was only then when he began to see that that righteousness isn't something that we earn. It isn't something that, that we attain. It isn't something that we accrue, but it's something that is actually imparted to us and, is, and it can be already true of us in Christ. And so I say that, friends, so that you would know to put your weary conscience at rest. One of my favorite books from the last few years, and I'm sure your congregation has been exposed to it, was Dane Ortland's Gentle and Lowly, reminding us over and over again that Christ came for struggling sinners. God is not angry with you if you're in Christ. Romans 8, 1 says it this way, There is now therefore no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Do you ever have that tendency? Like when you sin, you blow it big time. I don't care what it is. Private sin, public sin, yell at the kids on the way to church, whatever. And then something bad happens, and you're like, I had that one coming. You know, you you get a bill that you didn't expect, you you get a speeding ticket, you're like, yep, Yep, God was just, he set me straight. Uh, Friends, God's not exercising any wrath towards you. 
whatever trial he sent you, whatever obstacle he sent you, whatever uh, adverse experience you may have had was an expression of his grace and his kindness. His, His wrath has already been fully satisfied by the Lord Jesus Christ. All is well. And oddly, we think by feeling guilty that we will then become more godly, but it doesn't work that way. This particular application of Paul to being justified would have resonated very acutely with those who were struggling in this context in 1 Corinthians 6 uh, with fighting for their rights. Remember, they were taking one another to court. And Paul's saying, hey, look, you're already right with God. Why are you going to fight so hard for your own rights? (laughs) You're right with the one who matters. All is well. There's no need to keep going after that person. You You don't have to get justice. God's already declared justice for you and for them if they're in Jesus. Just let it go. It's okay. Understanding of righteousness leads, indeed, to righteous living. And so, friends, we see that change comes from understanding that we have already been changed. I appreciate that testimony of of Newton on that deathbed because he didn't finish the statement where I finished it. Here's this godly man who could have inevitably struggled with the horrors of having enslaved individuals sent them to their execution. I can imagine that on his deathbed that would have easily haunted him. And yet God indeed had done a miraculous work in his life. He was converted. He had become a wonderful pastor, preacher. His sermons are amazing. If you ever get a chance to read those, of course, we know his hymns. And so what does this godly saint do in these dying moments? He declares not only that I am not what I ought to be, I am not what I wish to be, I am not what I hope to be, he adds. Yet, I can truly say, I am not what I once was. And I can heartily join with the apostle and acknowledge by the grace of God, I am what I am. That's the confidence that the Spirit of God craves for you this morning. This kind of change, already true, by the grace of God. Not your grit, His grace. Notice the last few words of our text. He says that all these things are true. They're they're being washed and sanctified and justified. Notice it. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Christ's authority, when he died, was buried, and rose again. That's what authorized this change. It wasn't your resolve. It wasn't your stick to It was Christ's authority. It authorized it. And then listen to this. The Spirit of God actualizes it. And by the Spirit of our God. 
This change happened in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. It's all happened according to His glorious grace, my friends. So what's one way that this change will enable further change in you this year? What is that one thing that you so long to slay, that, that sin you long to slay, that, that virtue you long to cultivate, that, that ministry impact that you long to have? How are you going to get it? Where does it come from? It would come from your relying on the Lord Jesus and the Spirit of God. Maybe you need a little less resolve and a little more reliance. For others in here today, it may not be a particular area or thing that you would like to see changed, but maybe you're just acknowledging and happy in Jesus that you've been changed already. Some of us uh, can, like that child who's longing to grow, trying to speed up the process, we can look back to the doorpost that our parents have marked and say, like, wow, and it, I am way different than I used to be. I am so glad I am not that person anymore. Uh, what's for me in this? Oh, friends, just rejoice. Rejoice in Christ. Just be grateful afresh for him and what he's done. Give him the credit. Give him the glory. Give him the praise in this gathered context and in individual conversations. Uh, maybe before you even walk out today, just tell somebody how much of a loser you were before Jesus and then what new life has been like in him. Some of you need to rely. Some of you should just rejoice. And then there may be some here today who long for this kind of change, who long for this kind of cleansing, who long for this kind of righteousness, uh, who long for, for this kind of new destiny. And you don't have it. You've tried. Maybe you're just showing up to church in the new year to try to help you turn over a new leaf. You want this difference, but you don't know that it's true. Friend, a simple word for you would be to repent. Turn from that way of living and trust in Jesus and in Him alone. And if that's new language for you, if it's something that you, you don't understand, you don't know, or, or maybe that sounds just more like resolve to you, or, or you like getting a, a new gear spiritually, talk to someone around you before you leave and ask them what it means to repent and trust in Jesus. This change is only true of those who are in relationship with him by faith alone. And so, friends, it is all of grace. For those trusting in Christ alone, change is not something to work up, it's something to live out. So let's pray now that we will do this by his grace. Father in heaven, we praise you for the change that you planned for us long ago, the change that you provided in Christ, the change that you empowered by the Spirit. For some of us in here today are just rejoicing once more in what you have done in our lives, and we look forward with expectation 
to the continued changes that you'll bring about in the year to come. Thank you for that grace. Or for some, or the, the, the conscience weighs heavy stepping in this morning. Maybe even failures from the previous week have weighed down their soul. Lord, as those who are in Christ, as those who have trusted in Him, Lord, buoy their spirits this morning with the reality of their righteousness in Christ, sanctification by the Spirit, their full cleansing on account of His cross. Or set them on a new trajectory. Set them free from the bondage of sin. Or set them loose to effective ministry in the life of this body and their community. And then finally, Lord, we pray for those who are not yet in Christ. We plead with you that you would bring them to your son, even this morning. Lord, give them that life. Lord, apply this change. We pray that they would trust and believe in you. Empower now our worshipful response. And I ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.